The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to a very special episode of The Wizard Files, where this time around we're taking a break from talking to former staff members at Wizard Magazine to get into the trenches with someone who was on the front lines of the comic book fever that caught hold in the 90s. Yes, just as important as those who wrote about comics were the people selling them. So we are excited to welcome to the show the owner and operator of Hot Quarter Cards and Comics in Grand Island, Nebraska from 1991 to 2005. Howdy, Randy. Howdy. Adam. <laughs> Glad to get a chance to talk to you. We've really enjoyed our interactions on social media with you and learning through that that you had actually run a comic book store, which is, yeah, such a unique perspective that I think we're all excited to understand, especially those of us who, you know, were the patrons of such stores and didn't understand all the behind the scenes. But before we get to that, of course, we want to know how comics came to enter your life. So why don't you tell us your origin story? Well, a child of the 60s. The first comic I can ever recall buying is Flash 113 and just fell in love with the colors of it. I must have been seven, maybe eight. So I was then a huge DC fan for two, three years, bought Justice League, Flash, never really liked the Batman titles, uh, bought Superman, loved the DC War books. And I also bought a lot of Gold Key. Now, a friend of mine in oh, 62 or 63 gave me the first three issues of the Fantastic Four, wow. which I had never heard of Marvel Comics at the time. And I read them and I just, you know, it was just fantastic. And I found Fantastic Four, number four on the stands and started buying it. And I'm one of those lucky people who walked into a Grant's department store and saw a cool looking comic. But I had missed the first, what, 14 issues? It was called Amazing Fantasy 15. <laughs> Something called Spider-Man. And man, I grabbed that, you know, and I bought, I must have read that 17 times wow. at least. So a couple months later, I'm in the store again, and here's Amazing Spider-Man number one. And I was a little bit disappointed. Do you know why I was a little bit disappointed, Adam? No, tell me. Because it's the same story as Amazing Fantasy 15. <laughs> they just redo it a little bit. But then, you know, I, I, I bought that and I read it and I became a big Spider-Man fan. And so I pretty much stopped buying DC about that time, other than the Flash and the War title. I became just a Marvel guy. I really liked Fantastic Four. I really liked the Avengers. I read a little bit of the Hulk, but I didn't I didn't read too much. I read the first couple Daredevils, didn't really care for it. Liked the X-Men a lot. They seemed to be, you know, young and that helped. But Spider-Man was my favorite and continued on to comics for a few years and then dropped out. And as so many people did throughout the 70s, jumped in and jumped out. And then in the 80s, I really got into sports card collecting again and doing quite well with that and started doing shows in 85. 
And I realized at that time, I, w- I was teaching at that time, I taught and coached for a long time. And, and I thought, well, this is this is kind of a nice avocation. And, and that went well. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I'd kind of like to start a shop someday. And, you know, a good a good combination with the card business is the comic business. And so I started doing shows and advertising to buy comic collections when I went from different towns. And, and that got to be very, very good. I, I picked up a couple nice collections. About 89, I then started buying direct in comics and, and taking comics with me in shows. And now you may not know that that at 89 through about 94, Diamond was not the only distributor. Did you know that? Yeah, I, I recall that there there was another player in the game. What was their name again? Capital City. Yes. Okay. And that's that's who I was my distributor. And I thought they did a better job. And when I decided to open my store then in 91, Capital City was still in business. I think they kept going through until about 94 or 95 when Diamond bought them out. So I opened the store then in September of 91, which is also coincidentally the first wizard is listed as September of 91. Right. Now, as I recall, I sold wizard number one, but I think it was out in August. Do you know this for sure? Yeah, I think they got that first issue out by the skin of their teeth, they said. Right. And so uh, I sold a few in shows before we opened up, but wizard was really a set of niche. And it it opened up at the same time because what was really needed in the business was a price guide. Because before that time, about all you had was the Overstreet, Mm -hmm. which, you know, no one wanted to go to Barnes & Noble and buy a $15 huge price guide just to find out what their comics at home was worth. So I think Wizard kind of borrowed off of the success of Beckett Magazine, if you're familiar with Beckett, the guide to sports cards, because Beckett immediately took uh, the lead in the sports card industry for price guides because they had a glossy cover. They had articles uh, about the player on the cover. They had articles about collecting. They had articles about how to take care of your cards, etc., well, Wizard kind of did the same idea then in comic collecting, but only better. You know, it would get to be, well, in this month's Beckett, who's going to be on the cover? Will it be Bo Jackson or will it be Ken Griffey? And in Wizard, it was kind of like, well, who will be on the cover? Will it be Spider-Man or will it be Batman or will it be Superman? And then with what Wizard did even better is they profiled the creators of the comic which was something entirely new to people because they kind of like, gee, what does, you know, what do all these guys even look like? What, you know, I've been, I've been reading Jack Kirby comics for 40 years, but I don't even really know what the guy looks like. And so they went into that and they were really a great success story. And and it it really helped our, our store a lot. So, Prior to Wizard, you know, obviously you opened up the store, like you said, in conjunction with that, but where were you getting your comics news? Where were you getting information, you know, for pricing? Like, how did you determine, okay, I'm going to open up a store, I have these collections of these back issues I'm going to sell, plus the new orders that, you know, that I'm going to be placing, but how did you know, okay, I could price at such and such? 
Well, first of all, you you did kind of looked at Overstreet as as a general idea and condition wise, but but then you also just decided, well, how much do you think things will sell for, and and what is selling, and what do people want? For instance, when when I pretty much got started in the late '80s, DC Comics of the '60s and '70s, their back issues were incredibly low, and people wanted things like Jonah Hex and GI Combat and Detective from the 70s. And you really had a hard time finding them. And so you had this hard time finding all these DC books that were supposedly like a dollar and a half and two dollars in the price guy. They were worth more than that. And I found out early on that, that they sold for more than that. So it was kind of a trial and error type situation. And so speaking of that, then, like you said, if these are books from the 70s that you're now selling in the 90s, what was the makeup of your customers? Was it a lot of old readers? Did you see more young kids coming in or was it like half and half? You know, in the 90s, we had a, an eclectic bunch. We had uh, we didn't have very many pre-high school customers. Hmm. We had a lot of high school on through adults up to their 50s and 60s. And that was always something that bothered me. And in all the years I was in business, in the comic business, it just never seemed to get the younger crowd. And I would suppose, you know, that video gaming had a lot to do with that. They just, they just came of age in a more exciting medium rather than comics. So they just didn't really gravitate towards it. We did see a few kids that got interested in like Marvel heroes through the medium of like the Marvel cartoons of the 90s. Yeah, well, and I was going to ask you about that, too, because you said, obviously, you know, your business started with sports cards, then moved more into comics. And obviously, at this time, also, the comic book trading cards were huge business, I assume. Like, were you selling as many comic book trading cards as actual comics? Oh, yeah. You know, the first Marvel series with the five holographic chase cards, Spider-Man, Green Goblin, Silver Surfer comes off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And those were huge. People really liked that. You could pretty much make a set out of a box of cards. But of course, you had the five holograms that that you were chasing. So that helped then people would then come in and, and buy extra packs after they had bought a box searching for those hologram cards. And and that really helped a lot. Now, they kind of ruined the whole thing, though. They had the Marvel ones, and then they had Skybox came out with a DC set that sold well. But then they started going to things like DC Bloodlines. Yeah. That didn't sell at all. It, it kind of was overkill. Yeah, what what we realized with Skybox, especially because they were chasing the collector's market so heavily, we were just reading about this recently in an issue, is they were purposely releasing such a limited quantity of cases, and the cases had even fewer boxes in them, so that everything would be extra collectible inside. Like, we were talking about the, uh, the Death of Superman trading card series, where immediately, the month they came out, Wizard is reporting 
morning, there were like four chase cards, they were called Spectra cards, that were worth $90 because you just couldn't find the cards. They released them in such a limited quantity. Yeah, you know, on your last podcast, you gave the print run numbers on that. It was the one thing I laughed about because you guys were saying, you know, that Skybox was saying how limited it was and the the numbers they gave you, that was not limited. (laughs) (laughs) There was never anything about those cards that was limited. But one set I did like, and I can't recall the name of it offhand, I can see them, but they were the oversized Superman cards. Are you familiar with those at all? Oh, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, definitely. They had kind of a silver packaging, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and they had, like, rivets on the side. Uh-huh. Like yeah. uh, We had good success with that. We, we had a lot of good Superman collectors in that time, and, and that sold well for us. So this is a question I have as well, then. So how would you determine what were wall books? Was that something you had in your store? Did you have a big display behind the counter and, oh, this one's 50, this one's 25? We had what we called our golden wall, and it was basis for 132 comics. And we would have anything up there in the range of a nice, a nice striking $5 cover to maybe a $60 book. Anything else other than that would be in a display case. A quick story, a comic I always sold for more than it was listed was Red Sonia number one with her chain bikini. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it listed at, at the time at like $3. We would buy those and, and slap like $8 on it and it would be gone in a day. <laughs> never discount the sex appeal that's for sure (laughs) exactly now this is a question then so as wizard entered the picture did that change the purchasing trends of your customers did you yourself were you able to sell the books for more did you find people trying to sell you books they had and thinking they were worth a lot or how did that work okay now we're getting to my gripe about wizard you want to hear this let's get into it Wizard was a fabulous magazine, and I say that in all sincerity. In fact, you know, the days the comics came in, I would pick them up at UPS before I would open. I'd get there, and my assistant manager would be there, and we'd take uh, out all the the people who had who had reserved copies and whatever. Now, Wizard, they had some very strange prices. For the longest time, as I mentioned with DC and with Overstreet, they never gave those DC books much play. But then along came Valiant Comics, and we had had Valiant from the very beginning, and Magnus Robot Fighters sold pretty well because a number of people, older customers remembered it from the heyday. Solar didn't sell very well, but okay. Harbinger and then later Hardcore and Eternal Warrior didn't sell at all. Wow. No. That's not how they presented it in Wizard. Exactly. So what was funny is, I don't know when Wizard started presenting it this way, sometime in about 92, I think. Uh-huh. Suddenly, Harbinger becomes extremely hot in Wizard. And I believe Harbinger number two it was more valuable than Harbinger 1. Is that not correct? 
Yeah, there there was some debut of a character, I think, in number two that right. was a big deal, yeah. And so it suddenly, it's like a 70 or $80 comic, according to Wizard. And I said to my assistant manager, I go, I think we've got those. We would take books that didn't sell off the shelf and just throw them into a box for a couple years. And I said, I think we had some of those Harbinger 2s that didn't sell. And he goes, well, I'll go take a look. He came out with four of them. And, <laughs> you know, they were four books that wouldn't sell for what? I think they were a dollar and a quarter. Suddenly, Wizard is telling you it's an $80 book. It just didn't make any sense. And what I did was was I had some customers that were then kind of trying to, well, get in on this Valiant craze or whatever. And I and they were all good customers. And, and I just said, hey, I have this Harbinger 2. You know, it's $80. How about $35, $40 for it? Oh, yeah, pull it. Sure. That way I didn't have to be embarrassed by putting it out there for $80. Yeah. I just didn't think it was ever worth it. And I, I really don't understand why they did that. I know I know they've said many times they had no interest in inflating prices on books and stuff, but, but from someone who was in the battle lines and seeing what, what Valiant titles did, I can't believe anybody was paying $80 for a Harbinger 2. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I know initially, you know, what they pointed to was that Valiant had very low print runs at the beginning, so they were speaking from a rarity point of view, but also there was this big push, and I think it started happening more in 92, 93, but there was a lot of buy a bulk lot of books to get one exclusive edition, you know, the diamond edition or, you know, red label version, whatever it was going to be, and then you could sell that one at a premium price because, it, you know, it was only going to the retailers that ordered a certain amount. And I know even Wizard initially was listing all those retailer exclusives as the top hot books. And in about 10 issues in, they're like, yeah, we realize we shouldn't be doing that because it's not fair. Nobody has access to those books. You know, yes, they are very desired, according to them, because they're so rare. But yeah, most people couldn't pick it up off the shelf as just a regular cover price book. So it should count in our listings of hot books right the problem with that is the trickle-down effect is why i've still got 50 deathmate blacks in my garage <laughs> <laughs> because you were led to believe that there was this sudden spurge of interest on this and deathmate was really the crushing blow to valiant and probably a little, a little bit to image at the time too yeah, so let's talk about that then. On the flip side, was Image performing that much better than Valiant? Was Image living up to the hype and the value that was placed on those books and the attention they were getting? Image really sold. And I, I'm going to tell you why, and I'll never forget this conversation. I had a, a young man who was probably 1920 say to me as he bought two or three Image comics, this is where it's at. They're going to put Marvel and DC out of business. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, I can't see that. And he goes, they've got all the great creators. They've got all the artists. And I said, but Marvel and DC have all the great characters. And he goes, no, you don't understand. That, that isn't what matters. People want to buy these because they want to see Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld, et cetera. I said, no, you don't understand. People buy comics because they grew up 
with Captain America or Batman. They don't know Shadowhawk or the villains of Spawn, who I would have a hard time telling other than the clown or whatever his name is. I would have a hard time telling you who any of the villains in Spawn was, even though I I read the first 50 issues. But that's what was their downfall then later on, other than their questionable shipping. Right. I was going to ask about that as a retailer. How frustrating was that? Oh, oh, so frustrating. What's the book that Michael Turner put out in the early 2000s? Oh, Fathom? Fathom. We used to have a joke that, uh, well, Fathom number four or whatever they were waiting on will be out next month. It's only like five years overdue. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, the best book I think Image ever put out was Rising Stars. It was the top cow image. I was going to say, I've seen that in many a discount bin for a quarter. Yes, but what's the guy's name? Did Babylon 5, wrote it. Straczynski? Yeah, J. Michael Straczynski. Yeah. Those first eight issues are as good as anything I ever read. And we sold the heck out of those, and we sold the heck out of the trade paperback. But what happened is that was the time he was also starting to work for Marvel, and he, was, and he just gave up on Rising Stars. And he tried to farm it out or something, but, the, you know, the, it was always late, and people lost interest, and he lost interest. And, and that was a shame, because that was, a, that was an outstanding book that had a lot of potential. They just gave up on it. And there were so many situations like that in the 90s with Image. You just you just could not count on them to hit their perceived date that they were due. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, the Image philosophy, because, yeah, all the main creators that came out, Todd McFarlane has made it to Spawn 300, and Savage Dragon mm-hmm. has continued, you know, as well with Eric Larson, but everybody else was just like, oh, we're doing this, uh, now I'm jumping onto something else, or now I'm going back to Marvel, or... Yeah, I'm tired of that story. I got a new idea. You know, yeah, it was just like there wasn't a a universe consistency that they kind of promised at the beginning. And like you said, that was what you were getting out of DC and Marvel was that that continuity and that that nostalgic feeling. So one of those big events, though, the death of Superman event comes around. What do you remember about the build up to that? And then was there an event in your store? Was there a lot of demand? I remember this like it was, yeah yesterday. And Adam, let me tell you, this was huge. To backtrack just a little bit, our store did very well with DC and we did very well with Superman. From the very get-go, we had about six or seven people that had, I used to like to refer to them as the diamond run of Superman because they had that nice little diamond on it to tell you the continuity across the four titles. So we had a six, maybe seven people that got every one of the Superman titles. And so what I would do is I would order double that. So if we had seven people reserving those that month, I would get 14 of each Superman book. Now, we would have a hard time selling the other seven. Uh, We'd probably average three or four for each title. But that turned out to be golden because then, you know, once Superman 75 became so popular, people went back looking for those issues from the couple years before. So you were then getting a premium for them. But going to Superman 75 then, I would always take the order book home 
and do it at home. And then the next day I would hand it to my assistant manager and I'd say, add some if you see here or tell me, you know, if you think I've done something wrong or something. So I looked at Superman 75 and and the buildup on it and everything. And I decided, you know, I think this is going to be big. So I can tell you exactly my numbers. My numbers were, well, I originally ordered 125 newsstand copies and 300 polybag copies. And my assistant manager goes, are you nuts? (laughs) And I said, well, I think it's going to be big. And he goes, do you realize how many we have to sell for you to break even on these? And I got to thinking, yeah. So I knocked it down to 75 newsstands and 250 bags. So we let the regulars know, and and they reserve each a copy, a couple more than one, you know. And I think with all the ones that we had somebody claiming already, we had probably sold 30% of. So I went to UPS to pick up the books that morning in November of 92. And I get there, and, and my assistant manager is already at the store. And I see he was on the phone, and he goes, man, you wouldn't believe it. That's the seventh guy who's called about Superman 75 already. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. He says, I guess there's an article in USA Today. So, you know, we start putting all the comics and get ready. And the phone just keeps ringing and ringing. And and one of the calls is from the local NBC affiliate. And they said, do you have this new Death of Superman book? And I go, yeah. So I said, well, we're still about 20 minutes away from opening. And he goes, oh, great. He says, I'll be there with a camera crew in about an hour. So we open up and right away we've got some people. And and I had saw this coming. And so I put up a sign saying a limit of two per customer for Superman 75. And I got a little backlash on that from some people, but I said, well, you know, it's it's hot and we're charging just cover charge. We want everybody to have a chance. So they said, yeah, okay. So the NBC affiliate came by and luckily when they came in, there was about a dozen people in the store and, and that was exciting. They talked to me and they talked to the couple customers and everything. And uh, so we didn't really profit off that that day because we were out of Superman 75 by four o'clock. Wow. And that report didn't come on until at six, but but it helped business in the long run. And what was funny about that is we sold out of the newsstand copy and a lot of people were saying, well, gee, I I want to uh, read this, but I don't want to take it out of my poly bag. So I took one out to also get the poster and everything. And I said, well, we'll just have this one here and then people can read it if they don't want to open up the room. The store library copy. About five o'clock, this kid says, say, where's the Superman 75 that you can read? Because I I don't want to open up my polybag one. And I says, well, it's right over there. Someone had stolen the copy that I had out for people just to read. Oh, (laughs) wow. It was that hot. Yeah, but Superman 75, like I say, I have nothing but good memories. And I'll tell you what else it did. It was a quality book during those times, and it got people into that storyline. And for the next two years, we probably had 30 people buying Superman comics every week. And another, and we'd get another 10 or 12 for the stands, and, and they'd usually sell out too. 
And uh, it really helped DC. It really helped Superman. And and, uh, at that time, uh, I think DC really took the lead in the 90s, for sure over Marvel. And Wow. So this is interesting then, because obviously, you know, the, the polybagged edition of Superman 75, very big, you know, hype around it, all the extras that came with it. And of course, now the publishers are chasing those gimmicks, right? They want all these different cover enhancements. So, you know, like I actually got to meet the printer who printed the holograms for Robin 2 that would go on the cover. He had like an uncut yeah. sheet, you know, in his office. He was like, oh, that was one of my favorite projects we ever did. It was all all the different holograms. So I'm curious for you, is there a particular gimmick, you know, an enhancement that you recall that was very popular and then one that was just like, wow, that did not work and it did not sell or you just saw like the dipping? I'll tell you the ones I really personally like, those Avengers ones with gold and bronze and silver, they did. But I've got another story and and this kind of goes along with something else. Of course, in the comic and card business, you get a lot of people calling you and dropping by every day with the three magic words. Do you know what the three magic words are in the card and comic business? I do not. Do you buy? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I used to always say, well, of course I buy. You know, everything in here has been bought at one time or another. And we like to buy, but we can't, you know, we can't buy everything. But this guy comes in with, it's it's funny you should mention this because the book is a hologram book and it's Web of Spider-Man number nine. It was one of those that had the hologram glued on the front, if you remember those. Yes, definitely. I've got them in my long box. <laughs> and this guy comes in who I had never seen before. And, and sometimes these situations wouldn't go real well. But this guy, he was cool about everything. He came in and the first thing he says is, do you buy, and I was waiting for it, do you buy autographed comic. And I go, well, it's not something that we ordinarily do. But I said, if you have like a Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, you know, and can authenticate it, one of the pioneers of comics like that, yeah, we'd probably be interested. And he goes, I've got something better than a Stan Lee autograph. And I go, wow, you know, something in the comic business better than Stan Lee. I, I got to ask about this. And I go, so who do you have autographed? And he goes, I've got Spider-Man. And I go, Spider-Man, the character? And he goes, yeah, I've got the real Spider-Man. And I go, my, I'm thinking, okay, which one of my friends sent this guy in? You know? <laughs> but I go, well, you know, Spider-Man is, is not a real person. And he, he looked at me exasperated and he goes, I know that. But this is the real guy. And I said, no, there is no real guy. And he goes, no, this is the real guy who gets in the costume and goes around and signs Spider-Man. So now I know what he's talking about, because Marvel used to have a deal where somebody would get in the costume and they would, because I got the information on this, they'd actually send you the costume and you'd have sent it back. And then you found the guy to get into the costume. Mm. And then he would sign autographs. So I said, well, you know, anybody could sign that. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the real guy. (laughs) And I go, but the real guy could be you or me or a different guy every time. He goes, but he signed it as Spider-Man, you know, and he shows me this. And I said, but it doesn't do you any good because if I buy that from you and try to sell it to somebody else, they're going to say, 
who's the guy that signed this? I just can't say, well, he's the guy wearing a Spider-Man costume. <laughs> so he kind of got exasperated and he walked towards the, the door and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, you know something? Someday you're going to regret not buying this. <laughs> and you know something, Adam? I do regret not buying this because I've told this story a couple hundred times and I wish I had that darn autograph yeah. to show people. Although there's really, I've, I do have a web of 90. I guess I could go up and write Spider-Man on it myself. Yeah, just put on a <laughs> Spider-Man mask and, and you're official. Exactly. You're the guy. So that's my story on a hologram cover. Yeah, that's pretty great. Wow. So this is my other question then, because, you know, you talked a lot about Wizard, you know, really having great content and the articles. Did you feel like it reflected the conversations that were already taking place in your store? Oh, yes. And, you know, what I love about this question you're asking me is it, it goes back to your last podcast on the famous Iron Man versus the X-Men story you were right. talking about. This was an ongoing discussion in our store. And I don't know, you know, I, I can't tell you what the basis was. It might have been that there was something from that wizard article that started it, now that I think about it. Or it may have just been because I was an Iron Man fan, and, and the X-Men I, I didn't really have much interest in. And, of course, they were very popular. But it started with a couple of the high school boys that would come in every week, and we would joke around, and I'd say, Iron Man could be across the street in his Barco lounger <laughs> and literally destroy the X-Men from there. And, of course, this would just frustrate them like crazy because they, oh, no, no. Well, they could do the Colossus toss, you know, and everything, and, and they could do that. They're so much more powerful. Aren't they? So, so it got to be a long-running joke. And so this one kid comes in one time, and he goes, are you the owner of the store? And I go, yeah. You're the guy that thinks that Iron Man could beat the whole X-Men? <laughs> and I laughed, and I said, well, you know, we've had that conversation before. And he says, well, okay, what are you going to do about this? So he gives me this supposition. He goes, say the angel picks up Wolverine and he's like three miles in the air and he drops him. But of course it won't bother Wolverine because nothing ever bothers him to land, you know, from three miles up. And then he's right at, at Iron Man's feet and then he just uses his claws and rips through Iron Man and kill him. What are you going to do? And I says, well, I don't care, first of all, that he has this recovery period. If you're dropped three miles in the air to the ground, I don't care if you are made of animanium, you're, it's going to have an effect. But even that, Tony Stark is Marvel's foremost weapons expert. I got a feeling that he's going to know through some sort of way that the angel is coming and he could just use his repulsor rays and drop the angel and Wolverine out of the sky before he got there. And so th these are the type of conversations that we would have and the type of conversations that were just fun all the time. I, I used to be in a Wednesday night poker game with some guys. One was a physician, one was a real estate guy, and there was another guy that owned an implement company. And one day the real estate guy says, so what was the major topic of conversation at the card store today? And I said, well, it's funny you should mention that because we had a long conversation on who would you rather have fighting alongside you, Green Arrow or Hawkeye? And the physician said, what's well, got to be Hawkeye? <laughs> 
because he was trained by Captain America. And so it, it just goes to t- show you, Adam, that no matter what walk of life that you later choose or what profession, a lot of guys have that comic gene still in them. And even though my friend, the doc, was, you know, a well-known physician, he, he knew enough to say that, yeah, Hawkeye would be the better better choice because he had good hand-to-hand combat skills. Uh, see, I thought he was going to choose him because he was a fan of Alan Alda on MASH. You want a <laughs> Hawkeye next to you? <laughs> now, it sounds like during your time running the store that your actual personal enthusiasm for comics didn't wane. What ultimately changed about the industry or your attitude towards the comic business that led to you closing up shop? Oh, it was just time to do something else. It was just a situation of 15 years of working six, if not seven days a week. Got got a little bit tiresome. But the great thing about the business, card and comic-wise, were the customers that you would come in. And that was the best thing about the comic business, because every Wednesday, you would see those same faces. You know, and and you got to know every one of them by name, and you really enjoyed them. And and that, and that's the thing that I missed most of all is, is just the camaraderie of you, of the regular customers. What did you ultimately do with your inventory? Were you just able to sell it off? Do you have boxes in your garage? Oh, <laughs> a little bit of both. And I still read. Uh, in fact, I just got done reading Fantastic Four 166 and 167 a little bit ago. Now, are you still able to find people with that same fascination? I mean, obviously, comics characters, at least, are bigger than ever. Do you still find yourself like, oh, yeah, well, I was, I ran a shop and I, I'm into comics. Do you still run into other people similarly minded? On Twitter. Ah. There, there's a good, there's a, there's a good comic community on Twitter. Yeah. That's the only social network that I am uh, part of. But I've, I've found uh, people like that on Twitter and, and been friends with. Yeah. And like I said, I still read comics today. I seldom read new comics. There's so many great, great books from the past that, that I just soon read those. Absolutely. I mean, that's what this show is about. I mean, we want to go back and realize what did we miss? What was there that was just ready to entertain us? And yes, I've definitely, I'm a back issue guy as well. I've tried so many times to go into a comic shop and pick up something new and it just always disappoints. So it's exciting Mm -hmm. to get back to go, okay, I know these are tried and true writers, Mm -hmm. but tried and true creators and artists and everything else that I can trust what they put out or this is infamous. I'm going to check it out. So with your uh, personal collection, is there one in particular that you hold up now and you're just like, oh, this is either a favorite story or one you just like, wow, just the fact that I even own this is amazing. You know, you still have Avengers 4. You have Tales of Suspense 59, I think, first Hawkeye. You know, if I had to pick one comic, you know, two of them, I really like Captain America 332 and 333, Captain America No More hmm. by Mark Grunewald. I had a, a marvelous conversation with at the San Diego Comic Con in about '93. Just a marvelous person. So I, I hold those two comics in high regard. And then I really like the Superman book in the 2000s, Truth, Justice, and the American Way. 
Well, that's great. Well, is there any other story or uh, something that you wanted to share that from those days that was just one of those great moments that stands up and says, you know, this is what it was all about? As I said, every Wednesday in the comic business was fun because because you'd see people coming in the door with always anxious to to get their new comics and uh, and and back issues are more fun, but but that uh, promise of a new story of of seeing what Peter is up to this week was always fun. All right. Well, great. Randy, this was wonderful. I really uh, appreciate your time and, and sharing these stories. From the other side of the counter, it's a totally different experience, I think, than what we did just coming in and coming out of the stores. Well, I sure, uh, sure appreciate you reaching out to me, Adam, and uh, I can't wait to listen to it. And we hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating conversation with Randy, the comic book retail veteran. Such great stories. For more nostalgic 90s comic book content, be sure to check out our upcoming Wizards Half mini episode 19.5 this Wizards Wednesday. Follow us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram, and join our Wizards Cool Core by leaving a five-star review on your podcast app of choice or buying a official Wizards merchandise in our Tee Public store. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.